This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Jason Kavnis Experience is brought to you by Kavnis HR. At Kavnis HR, we deliver HR to companies with 49 or fewer people across the United States. Each year, it is estimated that small business owners are losing $27 billion because of HR, which comes out to an estimated $10,000 per small business employee. Also, small business owners are spending an estimated 25% of the time on HR. Time better spent taking care of employees, taking care of customers, and building their business. Kevin's HR, focus on your business. We've got your HR. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kevin's Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kevin's. Our guest today is Matt Conwell II. Matt, are you ready to be great today? Always. That's what I'm here for. Matt's primary role at TechCo is to find, help make investment decisions on, and help build Maryland-based startups. Matt works closely with many TechCo portfolio companies to help them secure customers, partnerships, and funding. Matt also conducts extensive outreach to all the tech communities and ecosystems in Maryland and does a lot of work supporting founders who consider themselves to be economically or socially disadvantaged. In 2017, Mac helped launch the Minority Business Pre-Seed Fund, which was later transitioned to the Builder Fund. Mac, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, man. I'm happy to be here. So, Mac, what what is TechCo? What does it stand for? So, TechCo is the Maryland Technology Development Corporation. We are essentially um, an economic development firm here in the state of Maryland, where our our job is to help. Uh, facilitate the growth of innovation and um, entrepreneurship here in the state. Uh, it was founded, I guess, now going back 22 years ago, 21 or 22 years ago. Originally founded to help um, to help commercialize uh, technologies coming out of a research institution. So if you look at if you look it up, Maryland ranks really high in research. Um, but we weren't doing as great of a job of, of taking that research and turning it into businesses. So that's what TechCo was originally founded to do. And over time, it's transformed into more of an investment organization. Um, we have nine different funding programs within TechCo to do things from stem cell research and commercialization, tech transfer, uh, rural-based businesses, minority-led businesses, C-stage companies, and venture-stage companies, right? So... We do the entire gamut of early stage investing, and we support many different types of entrepreneurs. So for demographics, does the whole team have to be in Maryland? The headquarters have to be in Maryland? How does that work? So we invest in Maryland-based businesses, which basically means you have a physical presence here in the state, and 51% of your full-time employees live or work in the state of Maryland. Um, Those two things have to be true for us to make an investment from TEDCO. So one thing I find interesting about TechCo is you have, I believe it's called a rural business initiative. I think a lot of people miss the potential between like tech and, and rural communities, right? Can you talk about how you're working that? Yeah. So um, I currently sit on the advisory services team. So our job is to, you know, work with everything. And my boss, Ann Balduzzi, she manages the rural business innovation initiative. So that was originally started because at TechCo, our job is to facilitate and help entrepreneurship across the state of Maryland. Well, just like any other state, you know, there are certain pockets to where they get a lot of attention. So like in the major metropolitan area, but we wanted to make sure we were reaching all the rural parts of the state. So we basically put together a program where we have individuals in each of the uh, rural parts of the state whose job it is, is to help grow those ecosystems and help work with those entrepreneurs to prepare them to come for take over for funding. Um, as part of that program, we also, uh, I guess two years ago now, started a pre-seed fund where if you are a company based in one of the rural parts of the state and you are already working with one of the uh, the rural business innovation initiative uh, team members, you can then come to TechCo to get pre-seed funding of up to uh, $25,000 to help your company get growing and get started. Um, we also have a grant for projects that I think is believed is up to $8,000. So if you're in the rural part of the state and you're working on something and, and you, you're working on a, pro- and you want to do a project to test something out or to build out like a portion of your product or to test out some science or something, you can get up to $8,000 in the form of a grant 
to help you go through that process, right? And so for us, because we are we are part of the state of Maryland, we are here to facilitate the entire state. We want to make sure we don't miss out on any parts of the state. So that's why that's important to us. So Mac, how how I put this right, Ray? Have the community leaders in the rural areas been receptive to Techco, or have they been like, oh, well, you know, we're in the country, this is the way we've already done things, we don't need this new tech stuff. How has that worked out? Well, at the end of the day, Techco's pretty much is what we do is we give people money. Nobody ever wants to turn down money. So all the rural, all the rural leaders are always help, happy that we're there. They're always looking at us for us to do more, right? It's never they don't want us there. It's always they want more of us there, right? That's really the big thing. What has been like something that's been really amazing that's coming from the rural area from your point of view? So one of the companies that uh, the RBI program is invested in is a company called Hot Flight. They're, they're looking to make the next generation of air taxis. Um, it's a really unique uh, concept, really unique company. Um, and why they're based in a rural part of the state is, um, you know, the team are, are engineers and they're, they're aviators. And where they live, there's literally an airstrip right around the corner from their houses. Like they live in an area where people own small planes and they can fly to and from their homes, right? It's the perfect place to build the next generation air taxi. Um, and that's an amazing company. So Hot Flight is one that we, we really like. That's a great story. What, what are some success stories from Techco? Um, I mean, Techco's been around for so long. We've invested in all kinds of companies. So, you know, um, a big name that people are going to recognize and probably not realize was a Maryland company, Squarespace. I didn't know that. It was a group of guys from University of Maryland. Um, I think at the time when they got the money from Techco, it wasn't an investment, it's a reimbursable grant. But, you know, we, we, we worked with Squarespace. Um, you know, we, we've had a lot of successful companies over the years, especially in the, um, the pharma industry and life sciences. But for me, you know, in 2017, you know, we started the uh, Minority Business Pre-Seed Fund, which is now the Builder Fund, which is a pre-seed fund specifically for women and minority like specifically for entrepreneurs who define themselves as socioeconomically disadvantaged in the world of venture capital. Um, so that's a really broad reaching, but you know, venture capital tends to only be confined to a very small segment of the population. And so one of the success stories I like out of that group is a company by the name of Scholarly. It was uh, when we uh, invested, it was a, a young uh, founder, 18 year old founder out of Baltimore building this really cool company today, you know, he's now gone through Y Combinator. He's raised over $4 million. He'll go on to raise many more. Um, his company's doing really, really well, but you know, when we made the investment, an 18 year old black kid out of Baltimore, you know, getting $40,000 was kind of unthinkable. And now, you know, he's got a company that's raised multiple millions of dollars. And even Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator is personally putting a check into that company. You know, that's, and that's probably one of the top performing companies out of that portfolio. So, you know, that's a company I love to talk about a lot. So a caveat, like, you know, we're talking about this later on about diversity, taking VCs, but like, like you said, the HEO kid from Baltimore, that's like a misnomer, right? How do we make more stories like that? You said like, he being accepts, how do we make more stories? Is it like this, is it, it's more like, you know, public schools, you see entrepreneurship more in the public schools? Is it more like VCs, you know, to go to schools and, put the word out there or I mean, it's like, I know it's a complicated problem, but how do we start solving this? I mean, I, I think there's so many, so much potential, like, you know, economic disadvantage neighborhoods, you know, entrepreneurship, they have to be entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. I mean, I think what you see in a lot of these communities is there's a lot of talent. There's a lot of smart people, but they aren't in circles that socialize the idea of building startups or socialize the idea of investors and VCs. Like when I started my first company, I didn't know what a VC was. I didn't know what an angel investor was. I didn't even know what networking was, right? Like I, 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 me and my friends didn't talk about those kinds of things, you know? And, you know, having access to the internet and access to all these, access to all this information, you know, we say like the information's there, you can find it. Well, if I don't know what I'm looking for, no, I can't find it, right? And so I think it is like, getting into these communities, socializing these ideas, you know, talking to these kids, telling them that this stuff is possible. Cause you know, the other thing for that founder is when I met him, he was 17 year old 
kid out of high school and he called himself a growth hacker, right? He had been coding since he was like, since he was like, you know, 12, right? Like, you know, not as many kids get exposed to things like that that early. And, and it didn't have to be kids, right? Just anybody, the exposure to these concepts and these ideas, I think is really important. And that's, that's what we need more. But then once you get exposed and you feel out, you want to do this, then it's about access to networks and access to capital, right? How much is a challenge that's like, you know, like, like, you know, those meetup groups, Eventbrite, you know, where like all these VCs and tech people have meetings up. Is it the fact that, you know, the, the, the people from the, you know, the, the lack of access doesn't know the, about the meetings and I go to the meetings or the people, the meetups and Eventbrite and all the so-called tech VC meetings are not reaching out to the community and say, hey, come to this meetings. It's like, it's, it's not to say blame, but it's like there's a fault on both sides for not reaching out to each other. Yeah, I would say, I would say that's exactly what it is, right? Like when I got started, I didn't, like I said, I didn't know what networking was. I didn't know any of these events existed. It was a black woman by the name of Christine who actually reached out to me. He's like, hey, you need to join this Facebook group and you need to go to these events. And that opened up a whole new world for me, right? And what you quickly realize is that a lot of these events and things say that they're open to everybody. Like, you know, we want more diverse founders. We want more people to come. And it's true but just having your doors open isn't good enough. Because if I don't know those doors exist and what do you have them open do for me, then do anything for me. You actually have to go out of those doors and tell people that you're there, right? And sometimes that means going into communities and talking to people that you might be uncomfortable getting to know or talking to, but that's part of the process. Um, and so I think it's, it's on both sides, right? You, folks, don't, folks in a lot of these communities don't know they exist, don't know these events exist. And the folks who put on these events think that just putting my stuff on Eventbrite and telling everybody to invite their friends is good enough. Like, yeah. no, need to do more. Need to be more proactive about it. Well, I guess me, they'll like have the same 40 people and every month they send the same email to the same 40 people, right? Exactly. So here's a challenge, I think, too. Not even talking about race, just about economics, right? Like, suppose you have like one, one person graduated from college, right? And they know... You know, pretty parents are middle class, you know, both parents at home. He got a scholarship, you know, he gets out of college. He doesn't really have to find a job right away. He can go back home, live. He can work for a startup, you know, you know, do what he wants to do. Another kid graduates from college, single parent home. He's the oldest of four kids, you know, he had to take loans, work, work, you know, he has to get a job, right? And right then it's like, you know, like he has, you know, he'll, he'll get a good job making 60, 70,000 a year, right? But he's like, I won't say stuck, but he's like stuck there, right? With the other kid, we take a year off, go for a startup. He potentially can like be a founder of a startup making, you know, millions of dollars, right? And this, I don't know how you fix that, right? Yeah, I mean, the safety nets are different. And there's not really a way to fix it. I know for me, when I started my first company, that was something I was worried about because I had already started my career. I was making really good money. And people were like, why would you quit your job to start the startup thing? Like you could fail. And I was like, yeah, but if I fail, I have a really good skill set where I could get a job. And also for me, like I've been homeless. I know what it's like to be homeless. I know what it's like to live out of a car or on a truck. Like I'll never be that again. Right. So like the worst of the worst that can happen to me in this situation isn't as bad as the worst as I've experienced, right? So for me, it was like I can take this. I can take this risk because I just had. I, I learned that I had a really high risk tolerance. But there's no. There's no way to to to. And also, I should say, like my mom, like I knew if anything happened, I could go live with my mom for a couple months if I had to. Like you know, my mom was going to be there for <laughs> me, right? Like I knew, like hey, if I end up homeless again, I go sleep on the couch in my mom's crib for a couple months. There's something to that. Right. Not everybody has that option, you know, so there's no it's, it's hard to solve for that. But sometimes you just got to believe in yourself and go for it. It's not always going to work. But if it does, you know, you got to give yourself the opportunity for that. Yeah, I think a support background, a support network has to be is very important. Like, you know, like if, if all your friends, your family saying like, you know, don't do a startup, don't start your own business, you know, take this safe route. Right. And you never if you know, no one has done it before. You're going to probably take a safe route, even yeah. though even though you want to, you know, build something that's, that's exactly what it is and no not everybody has that safe has that support network not everybody has that access right but if you do you know know that know that it's a privilege know that you have that and you use it to your advantage don't don't be apologetic about it like you know use those advantages that you have so mac you know for, for you know, it seems like the longest time people talking you know lack of diversity in tech vcs 
everyone's talking about it. There's meetup groups, there's meetings, but the numbers never seem to get better, right? You know, you always, you know, I, I'm making this number off. I think like black females, like 0.2% get VC money. And, and the numbers are abysmal, but I mean, I've been involved in tech. It starts like five years and numbers like they've never get better. Right. A lot of talking, a lot of talking, but it was like, there's any doing right. How, I mean, what's, what's going on with that? Any ideas? So like when we talk about in tech, so there are a lot of minorities in tech that have jobs in tech, right? They don't typically get jobs at the big tech firms. There's that. And then when you talk about raising money in venture capital, like I started my first company in 2010 and I've been hearing the same thing since then. If you talk to people who were doing companies before, then they'll tell you the same thing, right? So it's just never changed. And some of it has to do with this access to capital and friends and family, family, friends and family round of money to get started. Where if you don't come from a community or come from a background where you can get your first 10, 20, $100,000 to get started, you end up having to work just that much harder. Yeah, um, lots, of people don't, lots of people don't have friends and family for, you know, capital nah. like that, right? I mean, I and don't. So, like, that amount of time you spend trying to work harder to catch up to everybody else, all the other companies that start around the same time just go ahead past you. And from an investment standpoint, investors want to invest in companies that are already growing and moving. They don't really invest in helping you get started. And that's not what the investments are there for. And so it creates this chicken and egg kind of a thing where because people, because, you know, diverse founders aren't getting money early, they're not getting the chance to compete on an equal footing with their, with their, you know, their peers and the contemporaries. So then a lot of them end up dying out before they even get to the point to be at a position where they're ready to raise funding. And so then we start to hear this pipeline issue, pipeline issue. It's not really a pipeline issue. Like if you go to Afrotech, you'll see thousands of black innovators, right? The bigger issue is not pipeline, but it's more of a funnel issue. Like I meet minority founders at the top of the funnel with great ideas, just getting started, getting building. But we don't have as many founders who have access to capital to help them move through the funnel to go from an idea or an MVP or their initial product to, I got customers, I'm making money, I'm ready for, fund- for funding. And so that's what we were trying to help with here at Tedco, here at the, st- at the state of Maryland. But, you know, it's a hard one. And not every, and many investors don't have the appetite for that. I don't understand the markets or whatever other excuses they come up with. So, you know. I think, I think another challenge is this is quite a bit overgeneralization. Like, so like a lot of investors, you know, they'll say they want to take risks, but in reality, you know, they're, they're more likely to they'll back a founder who's failed one or two times, right? I mean, you, they said like they'll, they'll be more like, like a back a founder who even failed once or twice, lost a lot of money versus a brand new founder have no idea about, right? And in reality, if they just did some research, the, the founder with no experience is probably the better bet, right? Yeah, it is. But the founder with no experience has yet learned how to tell their story. And so and that's, that's, yeah, where, that's, that's where the that's, change that's, comes, right? That's, that's a good point. Yeah, because the founder who's gone, been through this a couple times, they know the game. They know what founders are looking for. They know how to tell the story. And they can tell you how the things they made mistakes in before, how they can fix them and what they're going to do different. As a founder who's a first-time founder, first-time pitching, they don't know any of that stuff yet. They're learning all that stuff, right? Like, I wasn't able to raise funding for my first company. My second company, well... We got funding out of an accelerator, but it's not the same thing, right? My second company, I was able to raise money for because I knew the game. I knew exactly how all the stuff worked, right? And so that's where the biggest issue is. It's a lot of it is like, you know, pitching to investors is really the art of storytelling. And first-time founders haven't figured out how to tell their story properly very often. Yeah, it's like a lot of first-time founders too, including me when I started about a year ago, is like, you know, sometimes you focus too much on the product, the features, right? Versus, you know, telling the story and, what what is it? What is your company actually going to do to solve a problem for someone? Right? I think a lot of founders get that wrong. That's 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 a, that's a big one, right? Like, if you go start pitching and you start telling me about all your features and how great the product is, like, you tell me how the product solves the solves the big problem. Cool. I want to know how you make money. Like, once we get past that, and then once we get after that, and I find out that I really like this, then we can take a deep dive into the product, right? But you know, before then, like, let's let's. Let's let's talk about the dollars. Let's talk about how you make money. Let's talk about how the money I give you makes you more money in very specific terms, not vague terms, right? Like that's that's where I feel a lot of uh, entrepreneurs mess up at. So Max, so basically the diversity problem is complicated. It's probably not, it's probably not going to get solved anytime soon, is it? 
basically it's complicated um but we'll see right you know with with what's happened recently after the murder of George Floyd a lot of people have come out talking about wanting to support uh black led startups minority led startups women led startups and also emerging diverse found, uh, um funders right so people who are raising funds people who work at funds already and so you know we'll see if some of this outreach is going to help create a generation of folks who are going to get a shot and then that generation of folks are going to have to show and prove and if they do it's going to be a great thing if they don't it might be more of the same so i'm going to be a little negative here right how, how much do you think of that actual people want to do good to do the right thing? How much does this mean politically expedient at the time, right? Uh, I think a lot. I don't, I'm, I'm with you, right? I don't know how much of that is just real. Like, I don't, I don't think any of this is going to last, but the money's been allocated and money is going into these places, right? So, you know, the folks who are getting this money got to show and prove, right? So, like, it doesn't matter if it's real or if it's sincere. Like, we're now getting, like, entrepreneurs and, and investors are getting the shot and they got to take it. Right. So that's why you're going to have this short window of like six to 12, eight, maybe 18 months worth of people who were never getting money before now going to get money. And they're just going to have to show and prove. And like, hopefully we get some winners out of it. Because if not, eh, who knows what's going to happen after that. Yeah. So for Teco, is this such a thing as going to Teco too early? So I would say yes. I mean, you're never too early to start having conversations with people. You are too early to start. Um, you are too early to start asking for money, right? And so, coming to, and so, like at the end of the day, the thing that tends to separate companies when we meet them, like once we find out you have a big market, once we figure out that we like you and your team, you know, once we think that your product is a good product, then it's really going to be the difference between traction across the companies that we meet. Like, are you? Uh, do we think that your product's really solving this problem? And do we think that you have? Uh, a strategy to gain customers or you are gaining customers faster than everybody else. Right. Um, and so like, that's typically the thing that separates the companies that get from the ones that get funding and the ones that don't. And so if you come to Tedco or you come to really, let's not take Tesla. Let's say you come to any investor and you know, you haven't figured some of those things out. It's going to be really hard to get money. Right. Just, just in general. Right. And that's, that, that goes for everybody. Even, you know, the white guy who went to Stanford. Like, yeah, I know we hear stories about those guys getting money just because it don't really happen like that. It don't happen as often as you think. It happens. Don't get me wrong. It happens. But it doesn't happen the way you think it does. Or as often as you think it does. So that, that kind of thing. So, Mac, talk about your own journey as an entrepreneur. Yeah, so for me... um, you know, I was a software engineer for seven years. I actually dropped out of school my junior year to pursue my career. So I started my career really early, did really well for myself. Um, as I was starting my career, it was around the same time, like doing computer science or being a developer was becoming like a thing. Like, it was like a popular thing to do, and this is how you make money. So that worked out well for me. Um, but in 2010, me and two of my best friends decided we were going to start a company. We didn't know what a startup was. We didn't know what VCs were. I didn't even know what networking was like just none of that. We were just three engineers that could build. Um, they ended up making me CEO because at some point after a year and a half of building and having no customers, I started going to events and like good things started happening. And they're like, well, since you're going to these events, this seems to be working well. So why don't you be CEO and just keep talking to people? So that's how that happened. Um, and we ran that company for four and a half years. We went to two accelerators and we learned everything along the way. But what, really, what was really important in that process one the woman, Christine, introduced me to the local tech community, to the Baltimore tech scene. And then number two, we got into the New Me Accelerator, which at the time was like the first accelerator geared to gator towards diverse founders and like had recently had their first class was a special on CNN. It was Blacks and Technology in Silicon Valley. Um, and so there was a lot of interest in it. So when I got out to Silicon Valley and did that program, I got to meet the who's who of Silicon Valley. I've met Ben Horowitz. I've met Mitch Kapoor. I know Ken Coleman, who's the black man who's been to his mentor. I met my, my first day in San Francisco, I met Eric Reese. Right? This is right after he wrote the book, The Lean Startup. Like, this is like months after he wrote the book. Um, 
I met Marlon Nichols now as a, you know, when he was at Intel Capital, he now runs, he's a partner at Mac Ventures, right? Like I got to meet the first engineer Dropbox. Like I met the who's who of the Valley being part of that program. And very quickly, I got to learn how all this stuff works and what makes Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, right? It, it was, it was a really eye-opening experience and I learned a lot. And so um, we ran that company for four and a half years. We had a pivot and eventually sold the technology off to a Fortune 100 company, which was really dope. And then I started another company. I was able to raise money. I got into another accelerator. And then my team fell apart. And I, I learned a hard lesson. And my team fell apart because I put a team together really quickly. Um, I found the whole new group of team members. And then like the span of six weeks, we went from, hey, guys, I have an idea. Let's do this nice weekends to... I found us some money. Um, we got into an accelerator in Philadelphia. Everybody quit your jobs. We're moving to Philly. We're going to live in a one-bedroom loft together. Not everybody was ready for that transition, you know? And my lead developer, you know, he, 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 he wasn't ready for it. And so, you know, he popped up. You know, he, he, he dipped off on us along the way, and our product could never get back on track after that. So that's that's kind of how that went. Yeah, and so people don't sometimes realize how hard it is to build a team of startup. First, you got to convince them that your, your company's worth working for. You got to work for free, and then I can tell people like I try to build a company like I'm gonna give you the equity. However, comma, yeah, that's like me telling you the product building in the rainbows gonna be yours, right? It's probably not gonna happen, right? But still, come come build this vision with me, right? That's my vision, you know, not yours, right? And it's it's hard to do. It's really hard to do, and you know. And that's that's part of the proxy sometimes investors use like so like investors don't like solopreneurs because you know one it's just so much work you need to do it's hard to do it by yourself the other thing is as a ceo you're the chief salesperson of your company so the first people you need to be able to sell are your co-founders like can you find somebody who loves what you're doing so much that they're willing to work without pay They'll take equity because they believe in the vision so much, but they don't, they don't need to pay because they believe in the vision you're selling, right? Like, that's a hard thing to do. It's also rough when you're the CEO, you make people believe in that vision and, and it doesn't materialize. And you feel like you let them down. Yeah, the amount of stress you can put on yourself, boy, like, a lot of entrepreneurs don't want to talk about the, the difficult parts. That's just difficult. If you take too long to build a company, like you can't expect someone to work six months a year with no pay, right? I mean, you got to, that's even more, more pressure on you. Like I got to do something, right? It is. And like, you know, that stuff can can eat at you. That stuff can really eat at you. And um, the, the life of entrepreneur is nothing but a roller coaster of up and downs, but the downs can get really down. So you need to be good at managing your own emotions along the way, because if not, it can really get to you. Yeah, definitely a lot of downs, a lot of no's. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get a victory. You got to make sure you like, you know, you chose that victory because they're going to be few and far between, unfortunately. Yep. So we talked about, exactly about this already. What are some, some uh, things about entrepreneurship that most people didn't get wrong? They get wrong. Um, they get wrong the idea that you can, if you have a good idea, you can just go raise money. That's you not mean, really how this works. Be Mark Zuckerberg in six months. Yeah, yeah, like that's not that's not how this works. Like, you know, you see the the articles and tech crunch and stuff, but like I tell entrepreneurs all the time, what you don't know is the backstory to that. Mm-hmm. You don't know that that founder had two companies that you've never heard of, and one of them exited that you've ne- that you don't even know anything about, and they've known that investor for four years, and now this is where they are. Um, or that that founder's dad was best friends with that investor in college. And that's how this happened. Like, you don't know the backstory yeah. to how these things happen. So you can't use those, those stories as proxies for you. It's just not, it's not how this works. If you want to raise money early, get customers. And if you like, how do I get to a point of getting customers? Well, that's the hard part. That's what you got to figure out. That was like the hardest part for me to figure out. Right. Was how do you get to the point? Like, how do you raise money? You tell me I need to get customers. I don't have money. And I had a VC. I had an investor tell me one day, like, that's your job to figure out. Don't nobody care. And I was like, dang, I got I guess I got to figure out the customers. And then I had another investor tell me the way he got his first hundred customers was by cold tweeting people. And so he took my laptop from me. 
went on Twitter and showed me how to search for people and started tweeting at people about my company. And it's like, do that. That's, that's, actually, that's, 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 that's a great idea. That's like how we got our first thousand customers from my first company because I didn't have any money. And so what I tell entrepreneurs all the time is you either got two things, time or money. Whichever one you don't have, you use the other one to try and figure out how to get customers. So if you don't have money, you better use your time and try to be as innovative with customer acquisition as you are with your product. Because customer acquisition will get you paid. Yeah. So Mac, what is traction? You hear people, the investors say more tracks, right? Is traction like paying customers, potential customers, users, user testers, uh, social media followers? I mean, what, what is it? Or is it a combination means of everything? different for every investor, right? So this is hard, right? In general, traction means customers or users, right? If you're getting enough users fast enough, you're doing something. If your revenue is growing fast enough, you're doing something, right? And what's fast enough? So like if you're growing by 20 to 25%, if not more, month over month or week over week, you're doing something, right? Um, and I've invested in companies that were pre-revenue, but they already had users. And I've invested in companies that have had a bunch of money coming in, <laughs> right? Um, and also understanding the difference between revenue and your margins or your profit, right? So a common thing is for marketplaces, a marketplace might have like half a million dollars come through as revenue, but their take home is actually only 10%. So even though you had half a million come through your platform, you only took home 50,000. So the 50,000 is really the money that you made. You know, and that's what I'm going to care about. And that might not be exciting enough for me to, to be like, I want to make an investment. Or I could say the fact that you got 50000 to move through your platform, that is exciting enough, right? Like those things entrepreneurs need to consider as well and understand the difference. Mac, from what you've seen in the past, on average, how many like investors or pitches does someone have to say? Well, I guess I'm going to ask, how many knows the invest, does, a, does a founder usually have to hear before they have yet to hear a yes? Depends on how much, depends on how good your traction is, right? Like if your traction's strong, you're going to get to a yes a lot faster than if you're the, the earlier you are, the less traction you have, the less customers you have, the less money you're making, the more no's you're going to get. That's just what it's going to be. Um, a good friend of mine, Brian Burkeen, likes to say how he had over 200 investors in his company. So he got over 200 yeses, but he pitched to over 800 investors. So that means he got over 600 no's to get to his 200 yeses. <laughs> like you gotta have some thick skin to get all those no's. You know, people, part of yeah, and people say don't take it personally. I mean, yeah, that's what they say, but it's kind of hard not to take it personal. You share no after no after no, right? I mean, has, I mean, I don't care who you are, it has to grind on you. It hurts. Like I get no's now, even today, I, still, I get no's. <laughs> And it doesn't feel good, but it is, I do know it's not personal. It doesn't feel good. It's not something I'm happy about, but I do understand like, like any given month, I'm going to see anywhere from 50 to 150 to maybe even on a good month, 300 companies. Of that, I'm going to have second meetings with like 20 of them. Of those, I'm going to be interested in investing in maybe three or four. And of the three and four that I'm interested in, I'm going to invest in zero to two. <laughs> Very often, I'll see companies I love and want to make investments in, but I don't have any more money to make investment in. Or they don't fit the thesis. Or they're too later stage and I can't, like they're too late. I can't. Or they're, they're too early and not ready for me to make an investment. How much time do you think founders waste this, like, I won't say cold calling, but like not doing re investor research, like, you know, like me, I'm a, I'm a, a B2B platform. I'll be wasting my time reaching out. Well, I'm, I'm going to see it around B2B. I'll be wasting my time reaching out to someone, someone only investing in consumer at the A round, right? How, how, I mean, how often do founders get that wrong? Very early on, first time founders get that wrong a lot until somebody tells them, like, this is what you need to do, right? Like until somebody tells you the game or until you start to find the resources and the blogs to get on, you see founders make those mistakes, but you typically know founders that are making those mistakes are making that mistake because they're just really early. This is like a founder saying, Hey, will you sign an NDA? Investors don't sign NDAs. It's not something we do. So anytime an entrepreneur asks you to sign an NDA, you already know, Oh, they're really early on this process. 
they haven't had anybody stop them and tell them, no, this is why not. Um, but those are also supposed to be teachable moments, right? Where an investor should take the time to teach an entrepreneur how this works and what the mistakes are. A lot of investors won't. And that's one of the most annoying things to me. Like that is an opportunity for you to take this entrepreneur by the hand and let them know like, hey, this is what you're missing. This is what needs to be done. This is how this works. A lot of investors don't take that time. That's something I try to do. Mac, how much of a time suck is the fundraising process? It's a complete time suck. It's like, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs and even investors know this. As you're raising money, you're, not, you're probably not focusing on your business. So your business may start to stagnate. Your business may actually start to, to fall behind a bit because you're just spending so much time fundraising. Exactly. We need to focus on your business to, to improve traction, to increase fundraising. So once again, the chicken egg thing, right? Yeah. So like it's, it's one of those things. But if you want to be a venture backed company, it's just, it's the necessary evil, right? And so investors understand that's what it is. We know that while you're fundraising is a time sink, but it's, it's something you're going to do and you're going to do multiple times. And as you get better at it, you can shrink the amount of time it takes for you to do it. But it's just, it's not an easy process. So Mac recently, like, so there's like seed, pre-seed, A, it's like all these, all like, like, Pre-seed to seed, seed to A, it's like all this stuff has changed and is in flux. Like, what, what's really going on with that? Does that, oh, does that really even matter now? It doesn't really matter. Like, all it is is like, is this your first time around raising money? Is this your second time raising money? That's all I care about, right? Like, how many times have you raised money before? Um, the naming conventions are whatever. Like, I've heard soil. I've heard, seri- I've heard seed plus. I, I talked to somebody recently they're like i'm doing a pre-seed plus round like whatever that whatever that is right like all those naming conventions don't actually mean anything it's like how many times have you raised money where you are in your dilution that's all we care about okay and um john hopkins john hopkins hospital is in baltimore right yeah so is is do y'all do a lot of uh like medical tech stuff since john hopkins is right there so Johns Hopkins and University of Baltimore, University of Maryland, Baltimore are both very um, life sciences focused. And so uh, at Techco, I mentioned we do tech transfer, which is basically making investments um, to commercialize technologies coming out of our universities. So we do a lot of that stuff. We do a lot of life sciences coming out of those universities. So, Mac, we talked about this a little bit, but talk about the lack of uh, the teaching of entrepreneurship in like public schools or schools in general, right? I mean, you know, math, English, all that kind of stuff, but there's really no, no class or nothing as far as like teaching young kids entrepreneurship, is it? No, it doesn't exist. And that's probably criminal in the day and times that we live in. Um, so many people are learning to be entrepreneurs. Um, and also the skills that you learn and the skills you gain from entrepreneurship go well beyond just being an entrepreneur. Right. Um, but that's why you have after school programs and, and things like nifty and, you know, these organizations around the country to, 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 to teach kids, you know, I, uh, I support a nonprofit here in Baltimore, the digital Harbor foundation. They do, um, after school programming around STEM for children. They also teach them about entrepreneurship. Um, it's something I'm really passionate about, but you know, we do need curriculums like this in our schools. Um, but you know, if you look at the school curriculums, they've been so much, they've been the same for so long. Um, it's kind of criminal how far behind we are in the times. So Mac, what advice you have for a founder? He has a, he's, he wants to start a, a tech company, but he has no tech experience, no tech background. It makes a non tech founder. So one, Try to find yourself a technical co-founder, which is the hardest thing in the world to do. It's the number one question I get all the time. And I tell people, if I had the answer for it, I'd be a billionaire. Two, we're in the age of no code. So there there are all these new things popping up that allow you to build apps and and websites and tools in drag and drop fashions. Like, figure out some of those stuff. Um, Third... There's been a lot of non-technical founders that have taught themselves the code, taught themselves how to build. You know, you gotta be, you gotta be scrappy because at the end of the day, like it's nobody's job to feel bad for you that you don't know how to do something. It's nobody's job to make sure that, you know, we give you a chance to do anything, Like you gotta make your way. And so whatever that means for you, you gotta figure out. Like I was lucky enough that me and my two co-founders all knew how to like build product, but we had no clue how to do the business stuff. 
like I took a bunch of lumps trying to figure out how to sell the people, how to do partnerships, how to how to like how to do all that stuff, how to network. I didn't know any of that. Right. And so just like, you know, people looking for technical founders, we were looking for a business co-founder for the longest time and we couldn't find one. So like, I just went ahead and did it. So Mac, talk about, um, co- well, I think it's called the term is co-founder breakups and how to prevent that. I don't know how you prevent it. Cause it's so common, right? Like, like they always say the, the, the perfect, like one of the, one of the best numbers for co-founders is like three to four to diversify your team and spread the skill sets. And by the time the company gets to their second or third round of institutional funding, there'll be one co- there'll be one founder left. It's typically how this works, um, and it's, it's it's tough because as the company grows, people's jobs and their roles change. The company tends to grow beyond their skill set. Like the person who's your CTO the day you start may not be the right person to be your CTO when you're at 50, 50 employees or 100 yeah. employees. Well, the personal founder doing marketing at one, you know, 10, less than 10 customers, now you have 100 customers, like probably have the right skills. So you got to bring someone more experienced. And so then, you know, it's hard to keep them in the CMO role when, you know, there's somebody else. So, you know, those kind of things create tension in teams. And then also as companies grow, you know, everybody has those, tries to have those hard conversations up front about what they want. But then as the company grows and money starts to get involved, the larger money starts to get involved, what people want starts to really come out, you know, what they really want starts to come out. And that can cause friction. And we see it all the time. Mac, talk about the importance of entrepreneurs putting themselves out there, either like in public speaking, you know, telling people their idea, social media. How important for a CEO to be, you know, quote unquote, a public persona, so to speak? It's important, right? So like... Your your brand is tied to your business and your business brand is tied to you as a CEO. And there is nothing you can do about that. And so you building your brand only builds the brand for your company. And you all and just like being a quarterback of a football team, you always get too much of the blame and too much of the credit. That's how it's going to work. But but there is advantages to building your brand. You get more people to know you exist. Um Potential partners now start to see you. More people talk about you on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook. Like all that stuff matters, but you have to balance it out. You have to balance it out with not only, you know, building your brand and spending time doing that, but you can get caught up in that. You can get caught up in that hype. You because you start to feel like a celebrity. People want to talk to you. They want you on their panels. They want you. And all this stuff is cool, but you still got to run your business, right? So you got to balance that out. And it has ebbs and flows throughout your growth and your company, right? Like as you start to gear up to raise money, that's a good time to start building your brand. After you raise money, that's a good time to get back to focusing on building business, right? Um, it shows it's kind of a back and forth thing over time. So, Mike, how many people get caught up in the hype of like you know living the what I call it live, living the startup startup life, right? Uh, more people than you would expect. Like it happens. Uh, being getting that celebrity status, like even now, you know, I've been really active on Twitter, and somebody called me a celebrity VC the other day. I'm like, yo, that is everything I don't want to be. I'm not here to be a celebrity. I'm here to support good companies. But I do understand the value of building my brand, and I'm not going to stop. Right. Like that's something I actually need to do right now. But in the long run, you know, I'm not here for that. And there's going to become times where I'm going to go like silent on Twitter. Like I'm going to disappear for months at a time just because I have to. Because I got to focus on getting, you know, the work done. Um, but founders need to be careful of getting caught up in that because the hype can feel good. And you, you can feel like you, you're bigger than what you are. But at the end of the day, it's not about how many articles you get, how much press you get, how many people are talking about you on Twitter or whatever. It's really about how your company is growing. So if you're being bigged up on Twitter and giving you all this press and articles, but your company ain't doing nothing. Well, then you're literally failing. <laughs> and so, you know, what, what is the goal here? If the goal is to become a celebrity, all right. But if the goal is to build a good company and really make some money, then go make money. So, Mac, you're uh, starting your own VC, a VC fund, correct? Rare Breed Ventures, yes. Rare Breed VC. So, talk about that some. How you how that came about and what's your vision for that? Yeah, so, you know, having, you know, worked and done pre-seed funding for the state of Maryland, 
I fell in love with the pre-seed stage and early in stage investing. And so it was just a chance for me to start doing it on a larger scale. You know, I've decided I want to, you know, I'm going to be a professional investor, but I don't want to have to answer to anybody for the companies I want to invest in. You know, when I see a good founder, I'm making an investment and I don't have to go through a committee. I don't have to go to any people. You know, I got a team. So me and my team will discuss it. You know, at the end of the day, final say, we get to pick the company and make it happen. And so for me, it's just a chance to go about making pre-seed investments and doing it on my own terms in terms that I believe are going to make all of my investors a whole bunch of money. So Matt, can you, can you talk about your investment, investment philosophy on those free seed? Like, is it Maryland only country, right? Like a certain segments? So uh, we look to invest in companies all over the United States and we'll probably do a few international. Uh, we are looking to invest in companies outside the major tech hubs, so outside of Silicon Valley, New York and Massachusetts, you know, trying to, you know, find those hidden gems, those diamond and the rough entrepreneurs that you can find everywhere that tend to get overlooked. Um, and so, uh, and for as far as the type of companies that we look for, uh, if you're a software company, I'll do just about any kind of software product. I don't do life sciences or therapeutics, not my skill set. But if you're a software company, I'm looking to see if you have a clearly repeatable or unique customer acquisition strategy. If you don't know how to get customers, then it doesn't matter how great of a product you have. I've, I've met plenty of founders making products that are way better than anything on the market that failed because they didn't know how to get customers. And the second piece is I like physical products, typically in consumer markets that have lacked innovation in 10 plus years, these legacy industries. And the big thing for me is those founders are out of the box thinkers and out of the box problem solvers. So that's what I'm optimizing for and looking for. So like, you don't need to have a lot of customers, but you need to know how you get your customers. And, you know, I'll even go pre-product on a physical product if it's in a market that just like hasn't had innovation in forever. How can people reach out to you? But before that, so let me ask you another question. Like, who would be the perfect investor to reach out to you? Is it like a certain stage, certain like certain number of customers? Like, you got this email from someone, you're like, oh man, I have to invest in this, whatever it is right here. Or, is that, or does that not even exist for you? So yeah, that exists, right? A company is growing super fast and making a bunch of money. Like every all day, every day, I'm gonna get excited about that, right? Like if you tell me you're growing by like 150% month over month and your revenue is going up through the roof, like sure, of course, I'm gonna be in that, right? But uh, generally speaking, like there's no magic number. Um, and so, but I'm always looking to talk to entrepreneurs. I'm always looking to meet entrepreneurs. Um, if you... Go to um, my Twitter or you go to Rare Breed VC Twitter. There's a form there for you to fill out and, and submit for an investment. We look at every single one of the companies that submit um, where you're in the process of getting feedback to all of those companies. So like, you know, cold email, cold tweet. I don't see every email. I don't see every DM. Just going to be honest about that. But I try to get to as many as I can. But if you do go on the form, I do see every company that hits that form. So, Mac, talk about this. I think a lot of founders don't realize how many emails, how many reaches out investors get right. I mean, y'all literally have to get hundreds, if not thousands a week, and probably more. And I don't think founders, they kind of most think, oh, I emailed Mac. He hasn't replied in, in two hours. You know, what's going on here, right? He's blowing me off. Can you talk about that? It's never personal. I'm never blowing anybody off. But like on any given day, I'm going to get 30 to 50 emails. I'm going to get 10 to 25 DMs. I'm going to get, you know, a couple people hit me on Facebook. I'm going to get 10 or 12 people hit me on LinkedIn. You know, I'm going to have some people try to connect with me on WhatsApp because they figure out how to get to me on WhatsApp. No, no, no that's original WhatsApp. I haven't heard that one before. WhatsApp, I've, WhatsApp. That's a good one. I've had people, you know, try to G chat me. I've had people, you know, send stuff to my personal email and it's like on any given day, you know, I'm going to get like close to 100 outreaches. I'm only going to get to a certain number of those. Like I just, there's just not enough time in the day. And, you know, I have a family, I have a significant other, you know, I have people who want to spend, who want to be in my life. And I got me, I need to protect my time. Yeah. And so I try to get to as many as I can. I try to reach out, I try to hit all the emails, but like, I just know, like, it's not humanly possible for me to hit everything, but I try as best I can. And for, and for investors, like that's what it is. And some investors is worse, right? Some investors get hundreds of emails a day. Like 
Like it's just, it's just, I don't know how, I don't know how anybody gets through all of them. And maybe people are faster typers and more efficient than I am, but you know, for me, this is what it is. So Mac, two part questions. Best mm-hmm. you can, what's the best code email you got? And what's the worst code email you got from, from the introduction part? Uh, the best cold email I got was from a founder who the email basically outlined who they were, what they were doing, and then gave me all their metrics. And all their metrics were, were tight, like, you know, growing by 35% month over month, you know, done 100000 in revenue over the last three months, projected to, like, all that was tight. And it was like, all right, cool. I know exactly what I'm looking at. I know exactly what I'm trying to The worst cold email I got is, Oh, I thought you were supposed to be for the people, but you don't respond to emails. F you. <laughs> All right. That's one way to get my attention. Sure. That's, that's, that's exactly what you're going to get. That's how, that's how you're going to get my money. True. Right. Um, so that's the best and the worst. So, Mac, can uh, you give us your social media so people can reach out to you? Yeah. So you find me on Twitter at Mac Conwell or Mac the VC. Search for me. Get, get to me. If you follow me, I'll probably follow back. So, Find me on Twitter and, and see all the, the content I put out. I put out a lot about how VCs work. And, and for our listeners, we'll have the, his social media links on our show notes. You can find the show notes at www.cavernishrblog.com. Make sure to share this episode with your friends and network. So, Mac, we're coming to the end of our talk. Can you give us any last-minute wisdom or advice or anything you want to talk about? Try to do your best to manage your own internal emotions. Like it's a ride. It's up and down and ups and downs can happen in the span of minutes. You go from being really high from really eating one, reading one email to really low from reading another one. Right. But take the time to manage your own emotions and take time to rest. The hustle is real. I understand you're struggling and working hard to make this money, but take that time to take care of yourself because it ain't worth your health and it ain't worth your life. Max, um, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. It was fun. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. Don't you know, pump it up. You've got to pump it up. You've got to pump it up. Don't you know, pump it up.